the Bards FM podcast. This is Scott Kesterson, and tonight you're listening to 72 Hours to Anarchy. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Tempt not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war. Good evening, patriots. One thing right now we are entering into is one of the greatest food crises the world has ever seen. The average household has less than 72 hours of food on hand. And after that point, they have no resources to acquire more, especially if we start to see explosion of food costs and a drop of an economy. Right now, we have President Putin talking about the expansion of BRICS and how they're going to continue to expand their capabilities to thwart the dollar and to blunt the dollar's hegemony. That's going to have significant impacts on the, the value of the dollar and what you're going to be able to purchase at the store. And already we're seeing a massive increase in costs across the board and starting to see depletions of things in our food supply chain. It isn't just the farmers at the source. There's a whole series of issues that's happening even in the distribution centers and what that's going to mean for us at the end user point. And so in more than ever, it's time to prepare. Patriots, one thing right now with that in mind is you need to have an emergency food plan. I can't stress this enough, and it's important to have one that's well-structured. Part of that is that you need to have a plan that has not only long-term long-term food, but food that can be used in an emergency that's ready to go in case you have to bug out or you have to simply dig into stocks, dig into things immediately. You need food that's nutritious. You obviously want it to taste good, and you want it to have a long shelf life without any worry. That's where My Patriot Supply comes in. Right now, if you head over to preparewithbards.com, preparewithbards.com, and you take advantage of their 25% off sale, it's the biggest sale they've ever had, you need to get one of these for every single member of your family. This is an absolute insurance policy in a critical time right now, and it's something that literally is so important as we enter into one of the most tumultuous and unknown periods in human history. So again, head on over to preparewithbards.com, preparewithbards.com, Take advantage of the outstanding product line that's offered by My Patriot Supply. Get your family set up. This is a way to ensure that give yourself some, some peace of mind and to know that what you have is an insurance policy for those times of the unknown ahead. Again, preparewithbards.com. Well, Patriots, the, the one thing that we've been talking about tangentially to this tonight is the idea of BRICS. And BRICS is a big issue. Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. They have come together to start offering their own currency, and they have valued the currency of the BRICS nation dollar or the BRICS dollar or the currency coin at 55 U.S. dollars to one BRICS coin. Now, the reason that becomes so important is we are a country that has become increasingly dependent on imports. And as you have this select few of five countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, that are establishing the core of BRICS, they're now looking to enter in other countries to include Saudi Arabia and potentially Oman. 
Now, all of this gets to be very critical because there's also 40 other countries lined up right now ready to sign on to the BRICS currency system. And they're working out the details of how they can bring together an effective currency system that will thwart the dollar. And it will in the end. This is a big deal. In fact, Peter Schiff today wrote, BRICS nations will blunt Western dominance. He goes on to say in an article by, it's in shiftgold.com, republished on, on uh, Zero Hedge, excuse me. The, uh, it says the BRICS summit is underway with talk of expanding the economic block and speculation about a new currency. Peter Schiff appeared on a Real America and Don Ball talk about these developments, saying that BRICS nations will blunt Western dominance. Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa make up the BRICS bloc. It accounts for about 40% of the global population and a quarter of the global GDP. Peter pointed out that, pointed out that not only does the BRICS bloc supply a lot of goods to America, but it also loans the U.S. a lot of money. Peter noted that the Treasury bond yields are at the highest level in 16 years. That's a big problem when you have a $32.7 trillion national debt and a massive budget deficits month after month. To quote, this backup in the yield of the 30-year Treasury, mortgage rates are going to hit 8% pretty soon. That Think about that for a minute. When, you, when was it last time that anybody was looking at an 8% mortgage? Just a year ago, they were in the in the threes. So everybody is going to be paying paying more, and things don't appear to be on track to get any better. The country is broke, and we are in debt, and essentially we are headed into, if not having already gone through a bankruptcy that they don't want anybody to know. But with this, what this also means is the buying power of the U.S. dollar is declining at a massive level. It's accelerating, it's an accelerated collapse. Now, this isn't showing up because when you look at the rallies that are going on today with certain stocks that are going higher and people are saying, look at the returns, what you're actually seeing is this pilfering of the stock market. And as they're doing this, they're shuttling money into hard assets to avoid the internal collapse. But we know of at least two billionaires now that have put puts on the positions, that is, on a, essentially a bet that the stock market is going to collapse and not small positions either. One of those billionaires put $1.5 billion up against the fact that the U.S. market would have a major crash. If he's doing that, he knows he's going to win. And there's no question that we're heading into this collapse. But that's also getting to the core of the sustenance of what people have to deal with each and every day. While we're dealing with a, with a say as a CPI, I think of it about 88.2%. It's the consumer price index, which is supposed to be the level of consumer in, inflation. The real inflation is at the core issues of what we need for a daily basis. The cost of rent, the cost of gas, the cost of heating your home. We need the cost of food, which gets down to things like the cost of basics, like the cost of bread, the cost of cheese, the cost of milk, the cost of meat. When you take those things together, and you start looking at those core costs, consumer price inflation, the consumer inflation for in-home, real inflation is upwards of 35 to 50%. People right now are getting to a point of having to choose between what if they can eat or if they can drive to work, if they can eat or whether they have to, what they're going to do for paying rent. And as a result, you're also seeing a massive increase in malnourishment and even beginning of starvation for children. 
They're being cast off to the school system to use the free lunch programs to feed them. And at the same time, the government is cutting back on the nutrition and the food availability for children. This is a massive problem right now in the United States. And we are heading into a massive collapse in a system that will ultimately be cause us a disruption that will probably make the depression look like a preschool walk. And I'm not exaggerating. So in our talks that we've had for the last three plus years about county by county, preparing, growing your own food, storing things up, this, this has all been towards a moment in time that we're starting to enter into now. But the problem on the main supply chain issues is much more complex than just a shortage of food. There's a whole series of events that are causing a cascade of problems that are literally spinning things out of control. Now, we start to look at surveys right now, and it's really a major problem. 82% of those that go to visit a brick-and-mortar store are having problems finding things out of stock. That's amazing for the American economy. Now, the supply chain problems we can typically think of as something that comes out of China or other other countries, but they're starting to hit home here really hard. And the problem is that as more and more people are starting to panic, this is going to increase. The real question is, what's the systemic problem? And the thing is, it's not just one thing. We have a series of events right now that are causing increased problems for supply, and there are a lot of them are happening at the distribution point. And we're going to go over those in just a moment. But in addition to the, to the, the inflation of the dollar and the decreased buying power, we also have another problem. The desperation of this government to get to this government to get more money because it's running out of revenue. As an example, they just put a tariff on the Chinese on the import of Chinese cans to can for canned goods. That is going to almost double, or almost not double, but fifty percent increase potentially for a canned good from two to three dollars in a very short order. So not only are we seeing inflation, not only are we seeing a decreased buying power, but now we're seeing more taxation which is leading to really a crisis moment of being able to eat and be nourished. And, of course, the cheap food that's on out there is garbage anyway. So then you get into with a malnutrition issue as a society. Very critical time. And it's, again, like we've been talking about so much, why it's so important to have stocks and to prep. It's not just for you. It's for our communities. We have to start thinking bigger. We have to start thinking broader. That if, if as we prep, we have to be prepared for other people. And then, of course, we aren't seeing these incredible, quote, climate disasters known as do weapons and known as arson and known as terrorism against the innocence of the U.S. And all of that's happening of the things that have been happening in Lahaina and other places, Canada and other places. So we're in a very challenging moment right now. And we are dealing as well with the insanity of Western governments that instead of dealing with the crisis, are more interested in blowing smoke up people's backside about climate change. Because climate change is the only fear mechanism that they have left to try to control people. And that control that they have is dwindling more and more as people wake up and realize that we've been getting screwed for a very, very long time. Now, I want to get into the issues that are really at at the core of what's going on here with the supply chain issues. And there are many. And again, as we know that there's problems at the farming level, we have weather issues in the Midwest. We have weather issues right now, hot weather even in Chicago, which itself is 
pretty amazing. In fact, I'm, I'm just going to play this clip because this came up today from the streets of Chicago. And I would say that when you, when you hear things like this, I would say the heat is probably getting to people a little bit. You got a second? What's up? I need to talk to you. What do you need? There's a complete emergency going on and you don't believe me. And you need to go home, put on your air conditioner, keep your family safe. Are you tell safe? Tell everybody you know. Are you and safe? And call the news station. Are you safe? No, not yet. Okay. Not yet. Go, go. Okay. I gotta hurry up. Uh, yes. All right. I Pray need Jesus. you, buddy. We need I'm Jesus. counting on you. I'm going home. You've been called. Yes. Your mission is now. Thank you. Go. Let's go. <laughs> Good. I, I, that's that's for our mod punky. Just because that's up in your part of the country, Chicago. Let's go. Anyway, anyway, back to our story here. The uh, the deal we have right now is real major problems with our supply chain issue, and they are dealing with so much of the the central point of distribution. So we know that we can grow a lot of food. As we deal, though, with scorching heat in the Midwest, our overall production is being is being threatened. But now I want you to listen to some of this report. I broke this report down. It's, it's the Poplar Report, really good report. He's an accountant, and he's really been looking hard at the numbers of production and, out, and output. And so we broke this report down in several points. And what this report is based on is a letter from somebody who has been working at a distribution plant. So I'm going to begin with this first piece to kind of get an idea of the challenges just in the production of the food that they're dealing with. The reason I'm writing to you is because I have firsthand information on the shortages. I work for a large industrial ammonia refrigeration service company here in the U.S. So I service food processing plants, cold storage facilities across the U.S., here is what I'm seeing in the food processing plants, i.e. Tyson Foods, Smithfield, Indian Packers, uh, Conagra. There are multiple issues impacting the food supply. First issue, procuring ingredients to process food is getting very difficult in the supply chain. Salts, flour, beef, pork, and chemicals. So that's the first issue, is ingredients. And when you hear the issue of salt being in short supply, you've probably heard as a prepper to stock up on salt, and it's a good idea to do so. Get a high-quality salt, by the way. Don't get iodized salt. There's a couple of great brands of American salt. One comes from Utah. Or get sea salt or get Celtic salt. These are high-nutrient, high-nutritional-value salts that are important. But the volumes they're talking about at, the, at these facilities they're finding shortages of salt. And when you start to find shortages of salt, it's one of the key preservatives or preserving additives that they have and flavor additives. There's other ingredients as well that's causing a shortage. So right away in the production of processed foods, and people are heavily reliant on processed foods, there is a shortage of basic ingredients. Now, we've been talking for quite some time not only about the importance of Patriot Gardens, but also of buying local. And, and I know just in talking to people that some of that has been happened, but there's always a resistance a little bit because typically buying local is costing more. The fact of the matter is that buying local is more true to the actual food cost than what you're getting with this garbage that's coming out of our distribution areas. And one of the ways to control a population is to keep food cheap and then to reduce its nutrition, which is exactly what's been happening, which has led to the 
the dumbing down to a certain degree of America. But now this system that's been so critical in maintaining the control of the people is starting to fragment. Now there's another problem in this, and this is the distribution in these distribution centers. They're finding shortages of parts. This is a big deal. Take a listen. Process lines are being shut down due to equipment failure due to parts acquisition. Now we've talked a lot about that, right? You take your lawnmower to a store to get it repaired and you're waiting weeks. You take your car to the repair place and you're waiting months. I had to wait eight months for my car to get repaired, right? Because they couldn't find the parts. We're seeing that with just the stuff that we interact as retail people with. And we've been hearing in the background that assembly lines have been having trouble with parts too. And here is the direct word here. Process lines are being shut down due to equipment failure due to parts acquisitions. So this is another big problem because so many things are made overseas these days that we no longer have a domestic supply for parts that are needed to repair them. Add to that other complications. One of those big complications are the issues of the, of the way things have become so tech-driven. And they're not easy to maintain in these, new, in these new pieces of equipment. And typically, you have a piece of equipment that's being run, it's running, and you have a technician team that might come from outside to service it. But these parts are coming from China, they're coming from Indonesia, they're coming from Taiwan, some may come from Germany. We're not making them domestically, and they, they, we don't have the capacity to make the parts domestically. Unlike things of old where you literally, people could fabricate parts to make things run, that can't happen anymore. So we're running into a major critical issue here of supply chain, and now I want you to go back to the BRICS discussion that we had and imagine now where this is going, that as the dollar begins to decline and we start to see the increase in costs of importing, manufacturers that are already struggling to keep things going are now going to face double, triple, quadruple costs for parts to repair machines and equipment. Things aren't going to get repaired. And with that, it's just a, it's a cascading set of issues that starts to happen that the system itself starts to break down. And where, again, this becomes so critical is this is at the distribution point. So you have distribution and, and, the, and the processing point. These are huge issues here. And this is what is the problem with our current model is we're not anchored locally as a nation. We're still reliant on this global interconnective model that is highly fragile. And it's starting to show its true face here very quickly. Now, this is another interesting piece. We ran into this same problem, and I'm about to ready to talk about it. We ran into this in 1999 when we started to enter into the Y2K problem. And what is that? It's the loss of knowledge to maintain older systems. Now, I don't know how much you followed the Y2K problem, but it was a big deal that people were, many of the systems we were dealing with in, in the older, some of the older systems were programmed in cobalt. They only had a, a handful of cobalt programmers that were even around anymore. That was a 1970s language, programming language. Many of the systems had not been upgraded. They were older systems, and they lacked a lot of the technical knowledge that they had to revive, obviously, in a hurry to try to get some of these systems up and running. Well, we're lacking an urgency from our government right now on this crisis, and we are also dealing with an outcome of COVIDCon. We've had a lot of older folks with the senior knowledge of how to run these older machines, and they have retired or they've died. This is a fact. And so we're losing. A, there's a massive knowledge gap that's occurring. If you remember some of the things I've talked about from Afghanistan, 
the Russians' knowledge, the Russians' approach to submitting that culture to communism, I should say Soviets, because it was, it was, this was not Russia, it was Soviet era, is that Spetnaz's role was to assassinate the elders. Why? Because they were severing the knowledge base of from the past to the present and leaving people floundering literally without a reference point to their own histories and their own cultural knowledge that allowed them to survive. That allowed the Russians or the Soviets to come in then and to round them up and put them into their schools, which was the beginning of an indoctrination into the nation. Right now, we have a crisis of similar but, but negative proportion here, meaning that we have a crisis of knowledge of how to maintain these old systems, but the knowledge gap is huge, and the people coming out of schools don't have the understanding how to maintain much of this equipment. Take a listen. In addition to that, I'm going to throw out there, we also had the conversation a while back that a lot of the people that knew have known for decades how to keep this type of machinery working, a lot of older machinery, right, that's been kind of cobbled together uh, to kind of keep on running. We're not talking about brand new production lines. We're talking about production lines that have been kind of cobbled together with machines that have been working for decades, right? Well, a lot of the people that know how to keep those machines running have retired. During the cough, cough, they're like, enough of this junk. We're not going to put up with this crap anymore. We're gone. And the people coming out of trade schools aren't being trained in how to use this really old equipment and how to maintain the really old equipment. They're being trained in how to work the CNC machines and, and new stuff. They're not being trained how to operate 1960s, 1970s, 80s machinery, right? So it's also a personnel issue, right? So much of the modernization that has happened has put us into machines that we can no longer maintain. That was by design. And with that, in, instead of being in a situation where they could have somebody in-house fabricate and fix the machines, now these machines require a technician from the factory. This has become a massive problem. If you've been paying attention to, at the farming level, there have been a number of states now that have passed laws that have, have allowed farmers to repair their own tractors. Most people were surprised those laws even had to exist. But a company like John Deere, for example, if they bought a large tractor, the farmer was not allowed to work on his tractor unless he, unless he would void the warranty. But John Deere's faced this similar problem, and they no longer have the technical staff to be able to do just that, is to provide the service in the field. And farmers would have 200, 500,000 million dollar machines sitting idle waiting for a part or somebody to come out and repair it. So in some states, Idaho was one, a few others around, have passed the law that says farmers can work on their tractors. Well, that's all fine and good, but there's another two components to that. These machines are so complicated that farmers now have had to go through a training on how to work on their own machine, and then they still have to get the parts, and that's the other issue. We're dealing with a similar problem here, and it's even greater because there is really no, no resource here to fill the gap of knowledge that kept a lot of these machines going. There is a there is a production, a car, an old car that came out of the World War II called the Deux Chevaux. It was a French car built by Renault. And Renault is a very well-known French car manufacturer. And this particular car on the assembly line, they had this quirk in their, in their production. And it had to do with the hood on the Renault. I'm sorry, on the Deux Chevaux. And as this came along, they would fit the hood, and the hood would always end up being sprung. It wouldn't quite work. It wouldn't quite fit. 
And one of the guys came up with a solution, and he literally had a boot, and he would kick the hood, and it worked. I, and they kept it that way. That's how they built that car for years, at having a man with a boot that kicked the hood that made it fit. Now, we laugh at that, but there's a, it was a practical solution to a comp, what could have been a very complicated problem in the manufacturing process. And they were able to solve it with a human solution. We're not at that point right now. We're at a point right now where literally these, these kids coming out of, of trade schools, if you ask them, for example, to do a design on something, they are going to be reliant on a CAD machine that does all their designing in the computer. When I went through drafting, everything was done with pencil and, and ink. Those were the ways you learned to draw. And you learned to draw technical drawings to technical specs by hand. But those skills are long lost. In fact, I don't even know that they're even trained anymore. We have moved into the industrial age, this nonsense of digital dependence. And with it, that's what's coming out of the schools. But the machines that they're entering into, these, these factories and these, and these process, food processing plants, aren't of the modern era. Many of them, because of the investment to, re, to rebuild their manufacturing lines, it's too expensive. So they're relying on using good machines that, are, that have been used for years. But now, again, the people that knew how to use them have retired or literally had to step out because of the consequences of the shot. This is a major and critical issue when we get into the food, the food security and food stability. Now, the other problem we have then that comes with that is the consequence of this that leads to a personnel shortage at the distribution point. Take a listen to this. So refrigeration manufacturers are on average 12 to 26 week lead times. So if a refrigeration unit goes down, they're waiting 12 to 26 weeks for it to be repaired. So critical part failures will render the line useless, especially parts for automation. I have seen multiple process lines shut down and the workers are sent home, causing them to seek other employment to maintain uh, their 40-hour work week. Then when the line is fixed, a processing plant can't backfill the needed workers to start the line back up. So the, the line gets shut down and the workers are like, I need work. So they go and get another job. And then when they're like, come back to work for us again, they're like, no, these guys are paying me about the same or maybe more. And they haven't fired me before. And you have. Who am I going to work for? And they're not going to come back. And so they have to either retrain all new employees to run this production line, if they can even hire them at all. Who here has had experience trying to hire people recently, right? Big problems. And he's, he's, he's not saying this is happening at one plant. He's saying this is happening across the board. This is a major industry issue. We've already heard from Ed Dowd about the this destruction that this shot has been doing to the millennial class. That's our healthiest working class in the nation. They have been suffering a 40 to 60% loss between disability and death. It's devastating what's happening to them. So there is a physical labor talent diminishing or shortage is what I'm trying to say. And that is that's causing a problem because just the available labor itself is not there. This myth that keeps going around that these people are all at home 
playing video games and getting free money, that's done intentionally to blind the truth of what's really happening here. It's not to say that some aren't doing that, but the reality is we have a physical shortage of people. And on top of that, then you have to add to that the ability to be trainable and to have certain base levels of skills. When you bring somebody in new, even if they're they're well experienced, and we'll say somebody has a good foundation of an education, be it trade school or, you know, amazingly, maybe they would find somebody in college, though I doubt that, because they're, they're some of these skills are too comp are not geared towards the type of university training. But we'll say we bring somebody in from a community college or from a trade school. Even with the basis that they have, the minimum time you're talking about here in, in training is typically 90 days. And it could be as much as six months. And since the reason most countries companies set up a 90-day window for employment evaluation, and then they go on to a, a raise, and then they go on to a second evaluation at six months, and then you go into another evaluation in six months, and then you go to a year-by-year year evaluation. It takes a while for people to be trained and to settle into the jobs. And these skills out here are, are require training, and without them, the systems, again, start to fragment because the people aren't there to run them. Now, the other problem we have is just the availability of cold storage, of the availability of food in the cold storage. This ripple effect that we're talking about as you have labor shortages, lines shutting down because it's a supply chain issue of parts. Watch how this all ripples together. So as they have parts shortages and ingredient shortages, they are also losing the knowledge people that can maintain the systems. So those things combined to where lines, production lines shut down, labor now leaves. These are major facilities we're talking about. These, the labor now leaves to go find a job somewhere else. And then we get into the, the issue then that they go to start again and there's, there's nobody there to run them. Well, that leaves a gap between the, the food processing plant and the cold storage. Take a listen to this, because there's not enough product to put in, this, in the cold storage. Additionally, cold storage facilities are experiencing the same effect, but are extremely empty. Once again, we're not talking about one facility here. We're talking about facilities across the United States. I have worked in these facilities for over 25 years and the racks are empty. These cold storage facilities and distribution sites such as Aldi, Walmart, uh, and Kroger. So there is a domino effect. They receive the packaged foods from the manufacturer, but the manufacturers are struggling. Then the cold storage facilities run dry and again have to lay people off because there isn't enough food for forklift drivers to move and can't backfill positions when things get better. Labor doesn't stay around if it doesn't get paid. That's just the bottom line. People have bills to pay. And so if an employer can't keep somebody employed, there's a window of time that the employee will remain loyal. But after that, there's a time when the employee is simply going to say, sorry, got to go because I have to deal with my family and I have bills to pay. All of these things have ripple effects and big ripple effects. Now, typically, distribution centers in the United States could maintain food in a grocery store for about 60 days. It's pretty impressive. Just, and that's normal type food supply. So on a normal consumption basis, the distribution centers typically could handle 90 days of food supply. 
to keep those grocery store shelves stocked. Now, remember what I said at the beginning, and it's hence the title of the show tonight, 72 Hours to Anarchy. And what is that? Why, why is that? Because most people don't have more than nine meals of food in their home. The average American does not have more than nine meals of food in their home. After that period, which is three meals per day, 72 hours, food runs out. And if you start to look at the ripple effect of this, and now you're looking at a, a distribution center that now has shortages, we're starting to see a massive con confluence of disaster. Here's the bottom line, and we're going to hear this last piece here in just a second. The current time, the current amount of food that this distribution plant, distribution centers have to maintain the supplies in a store is no longer 60 days. It's nine days. Take a listen. Parts are a major concern. Substitution of ammonia refrigeration parts do not exist because they're proprietary. So this leads to a scary scenario that without refrigeration running, the food is spoiled. Without refrigeration running, the food is spoiled and trashed, leading to bigger problems. Um, I spoke to supply chain experts recently, and all of them have said the same thing. A year and a half to two years ago, they could sustain, this is from the, the warehousing side, 60 days filling supermarkets and stores with the inventory at the distribution centers if everything stopped coming in. Two months, 60 days, right? Now, where are they? Nine days and they will be empty. From 60 days two years ago to nine days. Are you paying attention yet, friends? Are you paying attention? These parts issues are not going away. These production issues are not going away. The refrigeration issues are not going away. These labor issues are not going away. This is a system that is imploding and we've been sucking up all of the damage at the distribution centers. Going from 60 days worth of stock down to nine days worth of stock, friends. This is going to start impacting your store shelves majorly, if it hasn't already. Some places have already been seeing a little bit of it, but it's going to get far, far worse. That's even without any issues in the fields, without any food issues out there. We're talking about just they can't keep the factories running and they can't get the food from the factories to the stores in an efficient and refrigerated way. The last piece is so critical because all of this is all systems constant, meaning that the food production in the United States remains constant and that the supply and flow of food is constant. But that's not what's actually happening. Right now, the temperatures in the Midwest are scorching hot. On top of it, the Chinese have been buying up a lot of contracts on our food and also trying to buy up some of our farmland, as we've also seen the buying up of the farmland by the billionaires. Add to that, farm suppl su supplements have changed, subsidies have changed to where the government has been shutting farmers down intentionally so they're not producing what they were. At the end of the day, there's only one answer to this, and that is that we have to break from this central distribution model and get back to buying local and raising our own food. Unfortunately, most Americans are not prepared in this way yet. 
And what's going, where we're heading into is a colossal crisis of food shortage and ultimately the words hunger and starvation becoming part of our American vernacular. That's a frightening moment for a nation. I do believe we'll get through it, but it's going to be rough. And it's going to require that every single person that is currently prepping prep even more. You have to be prepared. I can't stress this enough. When things like this start to unravel, the first place they're going to hit is the cities. If you are in a city, I cannot stress this enough, get out. Or if you can't, then you better figure out how to bug in and build a tight tribe and community around where you are so that you're looking out for each other and you all have the resources to protect and defend what you have. Cities will be the first major problem. As distribution hubs start to dwindle down, people, again, back to that 72 hours to anarchy, in the cities, that's common. You have high levels of apartment dwellers, condo dwellers, small places in, in townhouses. You're even living with many people that are forbidden from growing food thanks to their retarded HOA and the people that get on those committees that tell you that you have to have beautification and a toxic lawn rather than having a, a garden. All of these systems have been built for a society of convenience and decadence. They have not been built for a society of practicality and self-sufficiency. This is the model that we've been pushing here for over three years and talking about prepping using the seven pillars of county by county. And all of this now is coming to a head of why it is so important. It is essential that everybody has a 90-day 90 90-day 90 supply of food. I believe it just should be more, but a minimum of 90 days. And your Red Cross, I think, is like 30 days. It's not enough. 90 days is what you need to have. And from that, if you don't have 90 days, get it as soon as you can. Remember, the practical issues here, you don't have to eat elaborately. You can, you can live very effectively off of beans and rice, which is still a fairly good value on the market. It gives you a protein and it gives you a starch. If you can and, and if you have the ability start learning how to jerk meat or can meat. Those are critical issues. Those help and those are long-term storage issues. Canning meat is a pressure cooking issue and jerking meat and you're going to need a dehydrator or some sort of food dryer. Those are critical foundation issues that you can build out a very effective emergency food plan and put that together for a reasonable cost and have 90 days worth of food. This is so important right now. Because once this food system starts to hit, to hit the fragile point, and I believe it will, I don't think we're going to avoid this. And as dark as this is going to say, I'm going to say it, I hope it does. Because Americans are not going to wake up from their coma until the things that they have become so accustomed to always having start to disappear. America as a whole is going to have to go through a very dark moment here to start to discover what it's like not to have food not to be able to buy food. And I'm not talking about everybody, but so many people here are still walking around in this land of, of, of Oz, literally thinking that everything is okay. More concerned about wearing a mask than they are worrying about what they're going to eat next week. As a nation, this is going to transform us, and it needs to. We have to put our priorities back on farming, on gardening, on ranching. None of this garbage of eating bugs and tofu and, and genetic grown crap out of a vertical ag agriculture facility. We don't need more GMOs. We don't need more stupid ways of digesting food. We need to go back to the practical and fundamental ways of what God intended us to have. But for the people that are driving those narratives of thinking that they can survive off of everything else but what's healthy, good luck. 
and they are unfortunately likely to be casualties in this time. Again, the culture of convenience where people have acquired a measure of wealth, they've got, they've, they have an ability to choose whatever they want, they can be picky, they can throw away. Our food waste in this country is astronomical. It's stunning. If you've ever had, if your parents or if your grandparents or you've been around people that came out of the Depression, you will note that nothing is ever wasted. But we grow up in a culture now where if you go to a restaurant, it's nauseating to see how much food people waste or go to, to go to stores and watch that when the shelf life is up on something, they just throw it out the back. We are not going to have those options anymore. So it's really a beginning of a change of a mindset. But the most important thing to understand is when we start talking about the vulnerability to the food system, these aren't quick fixes either. Food doesn't suddenly change next season because you're growing something. Many of these areas that, where food is being grown have gone to fallow. The, the lands need to be rebuilt, and it will take time. I've talked a lot about this soil reclamation project at, at my house in town and why that's an important model, because that land three years ago was as hard as concrete. It took an enormous amount of resources from manure to topsoil to compost to bring in and to do that every single time we planted to turn out a soil that three years later is rich and nutrient-stable and, and nutrient with an amazingly great tilth. But without those app, app inputs, it's going to take much, much longer. And it can be done, but you're talking many, many years rather than a, a couple of seasons. This is the crisis we're facing right now. Some theorize that in the current agriculture model that we have in the, in the Midwest, that we're about eight growing seasons away from a total systemic collapse in the, in the soil, meaning that the soil is so fragile and so broken down right now. It's broken down right now because of the mass amount of toxins that we keep putting in to grow food and to do this monoculture model that the, the soil itself has become little more than a container and the inputs that we put continually just fill out the nutrients that should be in the soil, but they're just doing it now with these chemicals. But it's fragile. And if that goes, then we have yet another problem. There's 70 million acres of toxic lawn, lawn in our nation. 70 million. Every one of those lawns should be converted to a space to grow food that you depend on, a kitchen garden, whatever. And you don't need that much space to grow a lot of food for your family. But the problem is that we are still committed to the, the lawn, the ornamental, the convenience, the nice, the decadence, and it's starting to kill us. And it's getting to a place where it could literally starve us out because there's not enough food production going on. So we're at a very critical time. I can't stress enough the importance for people to take prepping seriously and to amp it up and to also look and talk to your neighbors Get them to understand the importance of having food and food stocks. Now, small towns tend to do a pretty good job at this. In the cities, they tend not to do a good job at this because they tend to believe that they can always go downstairs or down the street and get their Starbucks and their, and their cinnamon pastry bun or whatever they do. And that becomes a life of normal, and yet it's a life that's dependent on so many levels in the supply chain that they don't even understand. This is a true fragile system. And right now, what's most important about what we've looked at here tonight is to understand that the fragile sense of this is more extreme than we realized before because it's sitting at the distribution points. I've been in a storm in the Northeast, a winter storm. It was up in New Jersey. 
following, it was the year after their major snow in when people got caught blind. The weather report came out that said they were going to have another nor'easter and it was going to come in and bury people in. I walked in for, I'd always kept supplies, even when I was working in the Northeast and living to a part of my time in a residence inn. I always kept enough supplies to keep me for a couple of weeks, no matter what. I walked into the store to pick up a couple of things, and I ended up just observing and watching in awe of what I'd seen. The storm was moving in. People went into full-blown panic. I watched an entire store of people loading stuff into carts, anything they could grab, stuff that you'd look at and say you're never going to eat that. They didn't care. The sheer panic and frenzy of just knowing that they needed to get food in the house, shopping carts that were mounded high, register bills that were running out the tops, people that were trying to charge when they didn't have any charge left, having to leave carts and walk away. I am telling you, it was crazy. And that's unfortunate, but it's the reality of what America is like, especially as we get closer to the cities. The supply chain system we have now cannot handle that sort of panic. And that sort of panic is going to happen. So be prepared. Share that importance for people to carry their, to get prepared so that the communities can carry the stress of the shortages coming out of the supply chain system. And in the process, get people to start looking local and working together as a community, not just as individuals. Patriots, let's pray. Father God, we come here today very humbled and very aware of a glooming crisis that's it's coming at us like a freight train. So sadly, Father, we just have a lot of people that are just not prepared mentally or physically for what we're going to face. So we're asking in, the, in a prayer tonight, we're declaring just an awakening of eyes, an awakening of of what people hear, an awakening of hearts, of the acceptance that it's time to change. We have to move from a model of dependency on centralized corporate supply chain systems to a model of individualism, sovereignty, and community building. So, Father, we just ask for this blessing to settle in on each and every heart, to be able to convey that message, and to start bringing communities together so that they start opening their eyes and start realizing the crisis that we're in. Together, we can solve this quickly. But when we start to turn our backs on a model like this, Father, we know very well that the vulnerabilities are massive. So in an hour like this, this is very much where each of us becomes a Joshua, trying to encourage people and taking on our own hands to fill the silos. And so let us fill those silos and let us find the many to fill the silos. Guide us and protect us. And we say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So patriots, it is an important time to be that voice, that watcher on the wall, to let people know what's coming. All of this sort of information are tools in the quiver, or arrows in the pouch, if you will, to be able to start listening and using details and facts to bring people's attention to the real crisis. We're in an incredibly difficult time because the old system has to die in order for us to find freedom and to rise up from all of this and reclaim this nation. But the process of death is slow and painful. And unless we are able to sustain for a period of time, ideally 90 days or more for each person, we're going to see some pretty rough moments. And as much as I hate to say it, I truly believe that this nation is not going to leave this without understanding the words poverty, hunger, and starvation. Let's hope that doesn't happen. 
But I think that when we look out ahead, a lot of how we handle that will be dependent on the people who have prepared and who walk truly on the foundation of Christ. Keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God always wins. But we are here in this time and this place for just such a time as this. We are at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Subdue the enemy. Mission forward. Patriots, I'll see you tonight for Fishers of Men. Until then or until the next time, God bless and out for now. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable, that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man, and man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. Surely the opening vistas of space promise high costs, and hardships, as well as high reward. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer, to rest, to wait. But this city of Houston, this state of Texas, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. This country was conquered by those who moved forward and so will space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. The energy, the faith, the devotion, which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. thousands of years to show its face. It has only one intent, 
to destroy God's light and to enslave. It has no scruples. It has no rules but one. To win at any cost. But we will never bow. For we are the remnant that will hold the line. This is war. We fight. We push. We climb. We never give in. We become the nightmare that evil didn't know could exist. We pray. We stand. We live by the words, in God we trust. We fear nothing. We are the light that can never be extinguished. We are patriots. We are the digital army that will help deliver God's wrath.